0: Hey everybody, welcome to Jet Lag once again. This is Andrew Smith and I'm here in sunny San Diego with 72 degrees Fahrenheit or 22 Celsius for you and the rest
1: of the world. And I'm Larry Heath and I'm having to look up what the temperature is right now here in uh, Sydney, Australia. It's about 24 degrees. Um, it's amazing that we can be in opposite sides of the planet at uh, different uh, seasons and be pretty much enjoying the same climate
0: <laughs> feels good doesn't it and uh while we're on the subject of sydney our guest today goes by the name of matthew van de Poot. uh i'll actually let him pronounce that because he is belgian and uh i met him while i was out in in sydney and uh he's a professional time-lapse photographer and more recently a very active youtuber. So welcome to the podcast Matt. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm excited to be to be here from my own own office my own home. It's pretty easy. Yeah, you're a uh, you're a very clever guy when it comes to gear and getting things done. And uh, we'll dive into that. But just quick backstory on how I met Matt. Um, I was working in Sydney for Tourism Australia and uh, we were putting together a event in tandem with Canon Australia during the vivid festival. And they were asking if I, you know, wanted to invite anybody or if I had any good ideas and the timing was great because just that day or the day before I was on Reddit and I saw this crazy post of this time-lapse photographer who tracked the sun going through the beams of the Sydney Harbor bridge. And I'm like, Damn, that is sick! I'm gonna email, I'm gonna message this guy, and uh, lo and behold, I throw out a message and I'm um, like, "Hey, man, you want to come ride a boat with free drinks and shoot stuff?" And he's like, "Yeah," and then <laughs> so he came <laughs> to the event, and it ended up being really cool. Um, and that that was the first time, personally, that I had really even messed with time lapse because I watched him doing it, shooting what seemed like ten thousand shots, and I'm like what are you doing man is this how this thing works and he kind (laughs) of gave me a run through and it it was awesome um but that's how I met Matt and then we ended up working together on a few other things since then and uh yeah it's been a pretty crazy ride it seems since then I mean you've been to how many countries now doing time-lapse
2: uh quite a few I've never actually kept track but it's it's Quite a few countries. And it's funny, that story, because I didn't realize that it was that Harbour Bridge shot, um, which is one of my favorite shots still, because it just really resonates with a lot of people. And that's what, what happened to you as well, I guess. But I've often told the story about that night, the, the, the Vivid Sydney night, because that's where I met someone else who introduced me to, um, I think, Instagram as like a way to make money in like the influencer world. I didn't realize at the time that people were actually making money off social media. So my eyes opened that night, and that's all. That's all because of you. So thanks for that.
0: Hey, well you know that's that's the way things goes. It feels pretty good, man. I'm I'm gonna need a royalty on everything I see from this point I'll send forward. you a check. Hold on. All right, cool. Um, so anyway, let's let's back up here because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, Time lapse is not a normal style of photography. I know it's gotten really popular mm. recently, and you know we're seeing it all over the place, and a lot of people are trying their hand at it. But back three, four years ago, it wasn't even close to what it is now. And even prior to that, it was kind of on the cutting edge of technology in the sense that there wasn't really an easy way to to pull it off. So, um, you know, what kind of got you interested in time-lapse? How did you start doing it and decide that, you know, this was going to be your thing? I I went to film school in
2: Brussels. Um, I graduated in... When, when did I graduate? Like 2010, 11 maybe? Um, and in the last year of film school, we were on assignment doing a, a like an on-location shoot and I was editing um, that thing there. I was done with the edit and I was just scrolling through Vimeo because back then uh, that's where I spent most of my time looking at videos that I thought were cool and, and getting inspired and stuff. Um, and one video I saw was, uh, I believe it's called The Mountain by Terrier Sorgier or however you pronounce it, he's Scandinavian. And it's it was this mega time lapse video of like stars and cloud inversions and fog and and I just I had no idea what I was watching it it literally just blew my mind I was staring at it I I played it on a loop just like looking at it and I was like what is this like why does this all look so crazy what are these things in the sky that was you know just a, like a Milky Way shot um and it yeah so that night I I started looking into what is time lapse. Figured out that I could actually shoot that on my own camera, uh, which at the time was a Canon 600D, um, and then I installed this uh, firmware hack called Magic Lantern. I'm sure that rings a bell for many people. Um, oh, started yes. shooting that night, like tr- just trying to figure it out how it worked and stuff the menus, and and that was my first like proper introduction to time lapse photography. And from there on it, it just kinda kept going. But the interesting thing, because I've gone through like what I've shot, you know, archiving old family videos and stuff, and I've I've realized that in old like mini D V um videotapes and stuff, I'd already experimented with time lapse so often without real like without really realising it. Um <laughs> when we went skiing I would film myself building like a little ski jump and then speed it up for this video and (laughs) we would spend so much time like mowing the grass and speeding it up and then seeing what it looked like and it's just yeah it's funny how it it came back so yes I kind of discovered time lapse because of that one video but I think I would have gone on to shoot time lapse anyway because maybe it's just in me I don't know Uh, Um, yeah
0: it seems like you had a natural propensity if you were already dabbling with it yeah pretty much So, so there is a huge difference between having a hankering to try something new and dabbling with it versus getting to the relative top or close to the top Mm. of a category. And I mean, obviously you could argue all day. It's almost like sports, like who's the best time lapse photographer. And I don't really think that's the point, but I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty easy to say that you're in that top echelon and Getting there was that a conscious choice or did it kind of unfold over time and 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 as things progressed, how did you keep staying in front of the trends and the technology? Um, as far as like, did I
2: plan it? I didn't really plan it, um, but then at one point I did start planning it. Um, and I've got to rewind a little bit when I started out doing the time lapse stuff and I realized how much effort, energy, time, and gear it takes to produce a handful of seconds worth of video, I was like, you know what, this is a fun hobby, and that's probably it'll ever be. I'll always do it as a hobby, but who in their right mind is gonna pay for all this? Like, surely, <laughs> surely that's not a career, that's not a thing, um, to be an actual full-time time-lapse photographer. Um, but then, life kinda happened, and I ended up moving to Australia, where for love i chased i chased a girl pretty much um mm-hmm. but i arrived here and i was great at time-lapse i had done a, a small amount of work in as a time-lapse photographer for big um like festival after movie productions and a few other bits and pieces here and there mostly for my own youtube or, or vimeo channel um but then i arrived here and i was like i've got to i've got to you know find something to do and i've got ai i've got to have a niche that I can sell to people, as in, like I do this thing really well. And luckily, I got introduced to um, a guy called Abraham Joff, who ran a is still running a production company called Untitled Films, um, introduced by a mutual friend of ours. And he's like, "Oh, cool time lapse! Yeah, we we need a few time lapse shots here and there." So he kind of took me under his wing for the first little while I was here, and took me on a few paid projects. And I just couldn't believe that I was. It wasn't like consistent work, but it was work and I was getting paid a a nice amount of money. And from there on, I guess social media started happening and people saw that I could do this whole time-lapse thing that ties in really well with tourism. Tourism loves it because it shows you like, you know, a destination in a kind of a, from a different different angle, different perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. And then work started growing there and there, like a little bit. And like, it just, that's what, like, I guess when I when I was, when I said before, like, I didn't plan it, but I did kind of plan it. I didn't plan it to ever expand as much as I did. But when I arrived in Australia, I was like, all right, I'm going to try and make this work. And it did. Yeah. Um, I've shot time lapses in every city of Australia, every country around Australia, um, all over the world, pretty much. And I still, I mean, I look back at it and I, or I look at my life now and I'm like, this, this is literally a dream come true. Um, sounds like the biggest cliche, but yeah, I wake up every morning. and I'm like, wow, that's just, <laughs> how did you do it? And that it's not really how it's just, I, I met the right people at the right time and I had the right work to show. That's what I always tell people. It's like, it's all about networking and like, you know, the way we met through the internet that wouldn't have happened if I didn't share my work online or if I didn't put in that time to, right.
0: To try and show it to more people. So just to play devil's advocate here, um, you know, a lot of people, when they're looking for somewhere to travel, the first thing they do is they go to Google or Instagram or whatever, and they're looking for that inspiration. So in some ways, if there weren't all the people taking the photos in these locations, you know, would people be going there? Is it, you know, how else would they know that they, hey, I want to go to the middle of nowhere in New Zealand to see a tree, or I want to go stand on a cliff in Iceland because Chris Burkhardt or more famously, Justin Bieber stood there. (laughs) I think People will always find their inspiration in different
2: places. As as we evolve as a consumer of media, um, you know, it used to be maybe film or TV. Now it's definitely social media. I'd say Instagram mainly. Uh, I don't know what's gonna be next. I think YouTube's also a big player in that. As for like, where do people find like when they look for where to go? I don't know. Like back in the day, how would you? How did you? find out you wanted to go to this island in Greece because you saw it somewhere maybe in a magazine or something like traditional media yeah nat nat geo right yeah yeah stuff like that um, so that's just kind of evolving but the the <laughs> the changing behavior of how people travel i think that's kind of stayed relatively the same up until the last however many years since social media kind of took over and people wanted to get actual instagrams like they don't call it photographs anymore and they're like i want to get a, an instagram I'm like what are you talking right. about? <laughs> that doesn't well, make then, sense. Well, uh,
0: then, then on YouTube though, you know, more recently with the the drama with Logan Paul, who's that? I mean, quite honestly, ex- <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how I I feel. Yeah. I barely knew the guy mm. except from Vine days. But you know, yeah, same. He goes to Japan, is a complete nuisance. Yeah. causes problems for everybody, and it's very clear that he wasn't there to visit the place at all. He was just trying to generate. The dumbest content I've ever seen. Yeah, agreed. and annoy a bunch of people. But on the flip side, it works. Uh, and he yeah, makes but a lot of money. What, what's the oh, system well, behind why it works? Right,
2: it, it's um, it's just views and ad money that he's after, and he's got an incredibly impressionable audience, and he has to keep raising the bar of stupid stuff that he does to get more uh, drama-based views it's pretty straightforward right. like him and his brother k- try and outperform each other and yeah before you know it you end up with the the suicide uh forest video drama i just right. actually noticed what before we started this podcast on twitter it's a trending thing that he made a his comeback video is now a suicide prevention video like a proper one i haven't watched it yet but at least he's i
0: on the money there I'm with what he should be skip doing skip that Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip it regardless, but it it brings in, um, you know, me into my next question for you. And, you know, it's really clear that YouTube is picked up for you Mm. and it's commanded a lot of your recent attention. And I mean, the amount of effort you pour into things is kind of crazy because Mm. you're prolific compared to most people. And you know, what is that like? And how did that, how did that kind of start? How did you decide you were going to spend more time and effort on YouTube? And Why is your channel different, and where do you think that's going?
2: I think what uh, probably sets me apart from other people is that I'm not on YouTube for the views of the money. I know that's a a potential long-term goal, but I've been on YouTube since 2007. My first few videos, um, all the the old stuff is hidden. It's still there, but it's just hidden. Um, I've been uploading videos to online to share with my friends and family since as soon as i could pretty much um the reason i make Mm -hmm. youtube videos and the way i make them not clickbait not drama based is because i just like making videos and i like sharing that with the i mean i call it a small audience compared to other people but i hit thirty-six thousand subscribers last night i know that's a fairly sized number but you know obviously it pales in comparison to bigger ones that's always going to happen but I'm not here, I'm not making YouTube videos to try and get instantly famous. I know that if I keep being consistent and I keep delivering quality and I stay, um, yeah, I keep being, being, I keep putting in the time and the quality and the work, there is a potential of me growing, growing really big on YouTube, which would be great, but that's not my goal. My goal mm. is to just make fun videos that I can look back to in the future and and look at my life and what i did like i've got i've been consistently uploading since 2013 or 14 uh you know that's almost four years of my life that i can literally scroll back to and see you know where i I, i've got videos where i met friends that are now really close friends um Mm -hmm. where i go to places for the first time where i go to places before they were famous the wanaka tree for example or that cliff that chris burkhardt and whoever else made famous that was all on YouTube before it was a, a famous thing and it's just cool it's like a, it's an audiovisual diary for me it's a, a time machine that I can go back right. to and and I've got the you know luckily people seem to enjoy it and it's growing and the growth uh, rate is picking up as well so yes of course in the back of my mind I'm like oh man I, I wish I had a million subs and I could make money off AdSense and more money and just be a full time YouTuber but I don't know if that's a smart thing in the long run um, I'd rather have I'd rather make lots of money doing great commercial work and high-end projects and do that on the side still because before you get mm-hmm. to that type of money, you're, it's, that's quite a way away. Um, my ideal scenario is keep doing what I do now, keep seeing interesting places and traveling and meeting interesting people and doing, doing good stuff and doing passion projects, talking about stuff that matters and mm-hmm. also doing all that and then make enough money
0: so that I can invest that money and live off those investments. So, I mean, you just mentioned doing 400 different things and a (laughs) a pressing question would be how in the world do you stay productive while on the road and on planes and in hotels? Yeah. You know, what's your, what's your take on that? Oh man, you just got to be as efficient as possible.
2: That's, that's what it is. That's all it is. Chase the peak of
0: efficiency in everything you do. So what does efficiency look like? What are some specific examples while on the road that you have? Um,
2: like practically the fastest hard drive you can buy so you don't <laughs> you don't waste time waiting for an offload um, I think mm-hmm. I mentioned it before I've got a lot of really expensive high end camera gear because I know that's not going to break down on me I know it will work in any circumstance it's reliable I like to minimize risk in my life um, you won't mm-hmm. see me doing stupid cliff dangle stuff um, that's not worth it to me. I don't. I don't like doing that stuff. I can make impressive videos without without doing that type of um, activity. Um, but yeah, efficiency. I'm. I've said this, and I'm sure that if some people uh, listen to this, they'll chuckle when they hear it. I'm passionate about efficiency um, in all aspects of life. So that's also like taking care of your mental health, which is um, has kind of caught up to me in the last couple of months or weeks. I've been traveling Mm -hmm. on and off and doing big projects since May last year. I was supposed to take a break that I had set for myself. Like, right, it's been been good. You had a great run, but now you need to take some time off. That was supposed to be August. But then I got a phone call from Discovery Channel. Like, hey, do you want to go to China for three weeks? We want you to be a host on this TV show. I'm obviously not (laughs) going to say no to that because that's like a lifelong dream. So I went to China and then I was going to take a break in November because other projects that I had scheduled in for September, October... Um, had to happen as well but then November got filled out and now I'm at the back end of a mini burnout and I've been pretty vocal about it on social media because I think that's really important to talk about that's probably something that a lot of people neglect to talk about and that kind of saddens me you gotta talk about mental health wherever you are because I mean Mm -hmm. again I don't have the biggest following but I have a following and since I started being more vocal about it so many people have reached out and show their appreciation for me being honest about it because they're like, oh, man, it's it's so comforting to read that it's not just me or that it's also you because obviously social media, and it's kind of like double, right? i got to portray being this super, super happy and ecstatic person because that's what gets a new audience in. But I also mm-hmm. owe it to myself and to them to be honest about it. I'm like, hey, I've been feeling pretty overworked, so I'm going to go back down to one video per week
0: and Mm. I feel it's really important to talk about that and to be open about that right yeah it's a really good point in fact it's something that we should probably focus a whole episode on because Mm. travel is so polarizing in the sense that it's the height of your life sometimes and it's the height of people's entire years and they save money and plan ahead and they go on these wonderful adventures and Mm. they end up talking about it for the next year yeah but on the same token And for a lot of people who come and chat with us um, and, you know, sometimes for even myself and Larry, uh, especially Larry, (laughs) sometimes um, the amount of traveling and the amount of work that can pile up, it can be a negative thing. Even Mm. though, you know, we're experiencing these unbelievable situations and and moments, it's, uh, it could definitely take a toll in a way that's unexpected and you don't really have that many, well, it, it feels like you don't have other people to relate to, mm-hmm. but as you mentioned, as soon as you throw it out there, seems like a lot of other people go, "Yeah, me too." Yeah, I think so. um,
2: what like I came I came to a point in the last year where I was like, I do not want to travel anymore, and I said no to things, and I know that sounds unbelievable to a lot of people because they live up to the travel and they want to. You know, see the world and, and, as you said, save money and take time off to go to all these places. But I moved to Sydney f- almost five years ago to be here and I was more away than, than I was here. And I love this place. And Sydney, as you know, is an incredible city. It's an incredible place to live. But all I was doing was going from one travel project to the to the next one, to the next one. And people are like, oh man, it's, I can't believe you get to go on all these holidays. And I got to like restrain myself <laughs> from slapping them because I'm like, what do you mean, holiday, mate? It's, <laughs> it doesn't even come close to being a holiday. It's like, right. That's half the reason I started vlogging is because I wanted to show what it's like behind the scenes, like what is it like to be a, a travel photographer or an influencer or whatever you want to call it. Depends on the job I'm doing. My role kind mm-hmm. of shifts, but I haven't had a holiday in, I don't even know when. Even when I went back to Belgium in um, in October. I was in Antwerp for a week, um, and that w- should have been a holiday, but it was—it was, it was kind of stressful because you got to see all the family, you got to see grandpa, grandma, your aunt, do all these events, family things, and obviously that's lovely, but that's no, you know, full-on plug, unplug, at relaxation time. That was kind of work as well, which sounds terrible, and I feel a bit bad saying it, but it's—it's it's what it kind of felt like, and mm-hmm. I don't have a holiday coming up soon but I really need to plan one in and I saw I was walking past a travel agent two days ago and they had like Maldives flights on sale I was like "Ooh, I should just walk in and book that right now
0: <laughs> all right well we can we can keep you to it then because you've uh, you've mentioned that you have to do it this yeah, this yeah, year so yeah we'll check in and uh, see if you kept your word yeah that's good
1: I have to say I mean I just did the, just that I mean I I did six North America trips between Mm. February and, um, September last year and came back and ran all these events. And Mm. by the time I'd finished that, I was so burnt out that I was pretty much on the first flight out of Australia, ironically, to, um, to, to relax. And, and it, it was, it was the difference though. I mean, the, the, the closest thing to a holiday we get when we're traveling for work is the time when we're sleeping on the airplane That's so true. And um This trip was the first I'd done in years that was actually just purely a holiday. I went and laid on a beach. I went and stayed at a friend's house and saw movies and it was totally restorative and I could not could not recommend it more.
2: Yeah,
0: that sounds like heaven, really. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Looking forward. Hey, well, speaking of the heavens, uh, Larry, I think you've got a segue for us into our random travel topic.
1: Yes, and uh, and a beautiful segue you've done there, Andrew. Um, no, to- <laughs> sorry, somebody slap me later. <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking about uh, the 747. Um, it's been in the news of late, um, the iconic Boeing aircraft, because... Uh, at the end of 2017, which um, at the time we're recording this was um, less than a month ago, Boeing flew the last 747 uh, with a U.S. carrier, Delta, um, flying their final 747-400 um, at the end of uh, at the end of December 2017. There's a a lot of reasons why this is important and why. This signifies the end of an era of travel, not just in America but around the world, and um, and I want to talk a little bit about that today. So five months before we landed on the moon in February nineteen sixty nine, Boeing flew their first seven forty seven into the skies. It's it, that old. It's what? that old.
0: No way.
1: Wow. It was it was the sort of plane that Howard Hughes had dreamed about more than 20 years earlier with the iconic Spruce Goose, an aircraft, if you can call it that, which still has the largest wingspan of any jet produced today. If only it could actually fly. When one looks at this period of aviation, there's no faster period of evolution than in the 25 years after the Second World War. In some respects, the introduction of the 747, which went into... Uh, passenger use in 1970 signifies the end of that period in one fell swoop and just two years after delivering the 737 still one of the most used aircraft in the world boeing delivered the first ever wide body aircraft to the world for in layman's terms that's the planes that have the two aisles going down it Mm. and then just to show off they added a second level to the aircraft it was a double decker the jumbo jet was born Though the aircraft continues to be built by Boeing with the new 747-800 design in limited production across a few airliners predominantly around Asia, the retirement of the 747 being flown by a U.S. airline is important because it all started with a U.S. carrier. The airline Pan Am, who survived the blackout in the Blade Runner universe but didn't avoid bankruptcy in our own, were the first aircraft to fly (laughs) passengers using the aircraft. And legend has it, The airline, who at one time were America's largest, were the ones who convinced Boeing to design the aircraft in the first place, requesting a plane twice the size of the 707, which at the time was the predominantly used aircraft. In fact, it was the first commercially successful jet airliner in operation and really changed the way we travel. It moved us from that war era of travel um, to the jet era, which we know today. And those planes generally held about 180 passengers at, at most. In the first design, the 747 held over 400 and got up to 550 wow. not long after. Boeing were clearly showing off. And this was just happening in a few years, you have to understand. It then held the capacity for 37 years. The capa- The record for capacity, sorry, for 37 years, which was a record held until the Uh, Airbus A380, of course, rolled along and its maximum capacity is around 850 passengers in a completely economy layout, which of course no one really does, but it's, but it's the record nonetheless. I don't, yeah, I don't actually know if it's ever flown with that many passengers, but it can. That's unbelievable. It's, it's insane. 850 people crammed onto an aircraft. It's, it's pretty. That doesn't uh, seem safe. I had no (laughs) No, idea. That's just like, what
2: a risk. Imagine if that one goes down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: That's like a small American city. Like, yeah. It is. And you can... Oh, so the I think the average aircraft operates around the 500 capacity mark um, if it's full. Uh, and the 747 pretty much stayed around that 400, 450 mark at the most. Um, every airplane was... was designed slightly differently based on the airline, which I'll, I'll get to in just a moment. Um, but the whole thing with this capacity, I mean, it, at the time, it led Pan Am to become a powerhouse in the sheer volume of passengers they were transporting, aided not just by the fact that they could put more people into the sky, but that it cut the price of air travel in half for the consumer. And that's the key with the 747. It didn't just change things in terms of how we travel. It changed who could travel it was no longer a privilege of just the few which until 1970 it was and it was now safer than ever to travel in 1970 the year the aircraft debuted for pan-am they carried 11 million passengers over 20 billion miles or 32 billion kilometers which was unheard of And they might have carried even more if they didn't utilize the upstairs area exclusively as a lounge space for first-class passengers, Mm. a place where they could sit and mingle, enjoy a restaurant-quality meal, and have a drink. So it wasn't even used to sit passengers at the beginning, and it wasn't meant to. But this area, this lounge, it was truly the crown that gave the aircraft the nickname The Queen of the Skies. Now, of course, the time the three of us started traveling... That wasn't a thing. The 747 um, was converted into passenger seating. I remember flying on a 747 in the 90s with Air New Zealand. They had that iconic spiral staircase pretty much right as you walked in. To your left was first class, to your right was economy, and upstairs was business class. Just as in the A380s today, everyone utilized the aircraft a little differently. But the 747, it was such an exciting time for air travel. And only in recent years have really some of these luxuries been returning the idea of a stand-up bar in, a, uh, in the A380 and, and, and even some of the 777s now was off forgotten for many years in the sake of having a few extra rows. And, and what makes the 747 even more interesting are the low expectations the industry have had of the aircraft. You see, as part of this incredible period of innovation, a period where we were going to the moon and building double-decker aircraft, we were also developing supersonic air travel for public consumption. Just one month after the first 747 hit the skies, so did the Concorde, the iconic supersonic passenger jet which retired in 2003 and is yet to be replaced. That was going to be the future of air travel, not the 747. I want to talk about the Concorde in a later episode because I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of this aircraft not just for its speed and splendor but how much of a non-event it was in the history of air travel if the original pictures of supersonic travel in the 1970s were to be believed by now that should be the way we're all traveling but we're not and the industry at the time thought the 747 was going to flop because of the faster technology they thought the jet era which had only started pretty much a decade earlier was was already at an end In fact, it's why the plane was designed the way it was. Thinking subsonic air travel would only be used for cargo within a few years, the 747 was developed to offer unequaled cargo space, which was why the pilot was placed on a separate level, and the extra space behind where the pilot was was going to be a crew rest area. They never planned it to be a place where passengers would end up sitting. Ironically, it was the 747 that became the blueprint for pretty much everything that's come since, be it the single-level 777s or the Airbus' record-breaking A380s, and indeed for cargo travel as well. You may remember in our first episode, we were also talking about how it became the aircraft of choice for the US President, which is the, still the case today. In the end, it was a successful aircraft by any definition. More than 1,500 747s have been produced so far, and new models continue to be developed. Though Delta retired with the 747-400s, the 747-800 being produced in limited numbers is going to ensure the aircraft will hit its 50th birthday in style. We're just not going to get it in the United States, but it'll be elsewhere. And it's worth mentioning too that the 800 model is reaching another milestone. It's officially the longest passenger aircraft in the world. I'll talk a little bit about why the US is retiring the aircraft in just a minute, but I wanted to get your memories of the 747. Do you have, um, memories of, of flying that aircraft over the last 20 years? I, I remember when my parents first started,
0: uh, taking flights over to the UK or my dad was doing business. He'd go to France or Germany and just hearing about the, the spiral staircase upstairs. And I, I used to wonder as a kid, what kind of baller rich people were, were up there and like what they did to have that kind of life and none of it made sense to me as a you know a 10 year old but I thought it was really cool
2: yeah that's that's I guess my experience as well I'm one of those people that I love I love everything about aviation and flight and airplanes but I know the bare minimum I can recognize a you know a, this plane and an A380 but to to recall specific memories I'm not entirely sure like any time I'm on a massive airplane like you know with the 2 hours as you described it I'm just like oh man this is cool I get to sit in one of these massive flying boxes there's hundreds of people here first class must be a dream um yeah I mean I, I'm always just happy to
0: get on a plane any plane really I I find it shocking and a little bit crazy that that plane was the standard for so long and Unless it's unbeknownst to me, it seems like so little innovation took place in between. Especially, I mean, now you're telling me that you can fit a miniature city onto an A380, and that's actually terrifying, and I don't want to think about that. (laughs) Um, Because, as you mentioned, four or 500 people on a 747 actually sounds crazy to me as well. Because I think in my head, if you were to ask me a trivia question of how many people are on an average 747 flight, I would have said, like, 350 or 300 or something. Um, so clearly my expectations were off on, on size. I find that insane. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable, you know, the, the scope that, that the 747 had and, and just the, the technology that was behind it at the time. I mean, so much of it was fueled by the fact that the government was getting people to the moon. So you there was a technology boom around air travel for for supersonic mm. travel for uh for wide body planes for for planes that could travel longer the 747 as far as i know still holds uh the uh, world record for the longest non-stop flight um which was um a Qantas 747 aircraft which i believe um is on display uh, somewhere in australia um because it, it, of course, has been retired as well. But um, it really was this remarkable period of travel. And not really that much has happened since. All these things that they sort of predicted would happen. Um, and, and some of that is due to the 747 as well. Um, because it, had, it made air travel cheaper. And so that became the priority. And that's, I think, what they didn't predict. Was that airlines would change as a result i mean airports changed um they had to make airports bigger and uh, more accessible because suddenly more people were traveling so the 747 by increasing that capacity and that demand for travel you suddenly had bigger airports you had more people traveling and airliners went well let's focus on this let's focus on cheaper travel and that's really what it comes down to when it why it's being retired as well so you've got little things with with well, quite big things with the 747, where it's four jet engines, a lot more expensive to maintain. Uh, the triple seven, which is essentially um, the Boeing 747 without the um, without the extra level, and and that transports around the 300 mark, which you were which you were talking about, Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. They only require two jets to run, so that's much cheaper, and it also suits capacity demands as well I mean since September 11 there's been a, there was I mean for quite a while there was a lot less demand in travel um, and what had what they expected to be the future with with a380s and and more 747s became this triple seven and the 787 and mm. essentially those baby brothers of the of the 747 have kind of killed the jumbo because Airlines are looking for the cheapest possible way to travel. And the 787s are a cheap aircraft to run. Um, and the 777s are certainly cheaper to run than the uh, the 747s. And they carry almost as many people. You know, you're, you're looking at 100 less. But, you know, that's just, that's what the capacity demands are. And you know, ironically, too, you know, you look back at what the messaging was from Boeing in the 1970s when they were saying that the future of the 747 was in cargo. And almost fifty years later, they're saying the same thing. Um, the 747 is still going to be produced, but for cargo and for private contract um, in government and and things like that. So um, it's mm. interesting that fifty years later, that the message around the 747 has sort of gone back to what it was originally, and the idea of supersonic travel is back again. Um, thanks, thanks in part to Virgin Galactic, but but that ever since this the Concorde stopped flights that's been a recurring theme is, you know, when is supersonic travel coming back?
0: Yeah, I just it's it's interesting because I'm wondering where the innovation is and mm. I feel like it's very polarized right now where the innovation is, hey, let's take average people to space or
1: <laughs> let's mm.
0: get Casey Neistat in a twenty five thousand dollar flight room on Singapore Airlines or whatever. That's one side of it. And then the other side of it is Hey, let's make our magazine a little bit smaller on United (laughs) so we can save $2.3 million on like weight. And oh, yeah, we're going to get rid of like that, we're going to get rid of the weight in the chairs and make everybody's average experience slightly worse. So we're frogs in boiling water and. Don't yeah. get used to it too quick. <laughs> yeah.
1: I remember when the A380s were first announced and they were talking about how, you know, they'd all have showers on them and, and you know, that this was the future of luxury travel and there'd be the lounges. And, and again, it was sort of like taking these dreams from the 1970 and putting it into now again. But very few aircraft, very few airlines actually took them up, uh, took Airbus up on that sort of layout because again they were just trying to fit as many people onto yeah. the plane as possible and but you know why though it's because Matt
0: hasn't time-lapsed his way into one of those suites yet so that's <laughs> actually yeah. you know I
2: have though right <laughs> no I didn't know that I got bumped to first oh actually it wasn't an A380 but I had a Etihad first class experience two years oh. ago
0: Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Did you get the full suite with the? Yeah,
2: it's a little. I don't know if it's the. It's it wasn't like the uh, whatever they call it, the apartment or whatever, but it was a little sliding door and yeah, the residence. That's the one. I always forget it, with the Nicole Kidman uh, ads. Yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it was great. You can find it on my YouTube channel. Um, it happened right around when Casey Neistat did his first viral first class video, and I was so frustrated because Belgian media picked up his video, and were <laughs> plastering it all over social media. <laughs> And I was like, "Listen up, you mother! Why don't you ever talk about Belgian people doing stuff? They're always going to like other countries to find you know social media stories." And I've—it's just—I mean—it's a small personal frustration I've got with Belgian media. But um, I commented my video on their news story on Facebook. It's like, hey, by the way, I did the exact same thing, and I'm Belgian. How good! And then they actually add, um, added it to their um, their piece, their article, which was fun. <laughs> yeah, that's my little Casey Neistat.
0: First class, anecdote. <laughs> Sorry to bring up a sore spot. <laughs> no, no, it's all good.
1: I, I, I just hope you wear better sunglasses. I do,
0: actually, yeah. And
1: I shot a, <laughs> Although, I shot a
2: really cool video through the... That's why I brought it up, because I shot a time-lapse through the the little window, I think, when I was flying over Iran. And they have all these like wild gas fires in the mountains. And I posted that GIF. I made a GIF off of it, and I posted it on Reddit. And then it kept hitting front page for quite quite a period. And still people contact me about it like, hey bro, I saw that fire gifting, that's crazy.
1: Has Reddit been an important um, tool for you to kind of get your um, content yeah. out there?
2: Yeah, 100%. And it's something I should spend more time on and try and leverage is more. It's just a really difficult platform to control because as soon as the, the people... Uh, in brackets, think that you're self-promoting, which you are, they try and destroy you, which is weird because it's a platform that's constantly nagging about not having enough original content. And here you are (laughs) dropping high quality original content that's actually interesting and engaging with a creator that's willing to talk about it and answer questions, yet you get shut down immediately unless you're, you know, someone they love. So I'm trying to Trying to figure out how can, how can I become a loved person in, for example, the photography or travel community and then leverage that massive audience there to to get more exposure on my own work.
0: Um, it's so hard on Reddit. It's it's, it's the best yeah. and worst place yeah. and you don't get to decide when it's which yeah. one. I that remember being... I, actually but my first post I ever put on Reddit, I made front page and yeah. I was like, what? Is this how <laughs> this place works? Two. You know, I posted some <laughs> stupid cliff picture in the blue mountains yeah. and i got 400,000 hits in like 3 hours and i was kind of crapping my pants because i didn't want tourism australia to find out about it cuz i wasn't supposed to go sit on a cliff yeah um but you know ever since then i haven't had that uh, front page experience so yeah who knows i what?
2: um i had my first um my my first big break on youtube i got like 3 or 4,000 subs um in 2013 when I posted my time-lapse showreel reel to our videos, um, which gave me massive exposure and a big boost, and that's kind of like, I'll always be grateful for that because people still remember that video. That was before time-lapse was as popular as it became. Like that's what you mentioned, I think, at the start of this episode. Is it's become incredibly popular, um, and I was just at the at the right time. I was I was just there with a with some original content that everyone just lapped up and was awesome.
1: Is amazing. You know, you, you. We were talking before about, you know, the burnout and needing a holiday. Mm. So maybe this isn't the appropriate question, but um, <laughs> do you do you still have things on your bucket list that you that you want to do travel wise, irrespective of the the time lapse side of things? But mm. um, you know, are there still things that places you want to go and 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 things oh, you yeah. want to do?
2: So many, and that's the issue with travel, um, as I'm sure you all know. It's that paradox: the more you see of the world the more you realize you haven't seen anything because we live on such an enormous planet. I've got so mm. many places that I want to visit, especially places that are under threat from climate change, like any icy region, pretty much, or any mm. tropical region that is still around now before, um, before the ocean takes over. Um, I went to Vanuatu for a personal uh, passion project. I shot a doco there that I'm editing uh, in two weeks with uh, my buddy from New Zealand. We kind of we wanted to do something about climate change in the South Pacific, so we went there and shot all these interviews and all these scenic shots, and and it was amazing. It was beautiful, but also really sad because the impacts are so heavy. They're, they've already witnessed so much change in their environment, and it's there's so many of those pla- so many of those places that I want to see before they are changed um,
0: irreparably. One of our previous guests, um, Craig, just got back from. Antarctica Mm. in November. Yeah, that's one of those places. And he's he's not a photographer, um, you know, or videographer, really. And still, the stuff he walked away with, just from his, you know, his Pixel Two photos were incredible. And he brought a uh, he brought a 360 camera with him, and Mm. it just it it, I don't know. It made me feel very urgent. Yeah, it was hard to explain because it was beautiful, but I felt. Like I had to go too, in yeah. the kind of way where maybe I can't, or maybe I won't, or maybe it won't be the same when I try. You yeah. know,
2: and it's it's the same with a lot of places. Like look at the Great Barrier Reef, that is mm. just the rising ocean uh, temperatures and ocean acidification as well. But in general, coral bleaching is just ravaging the entire planet or the entire ocean.
0: All right, man. Well, it was awesome talking with you about all this stuff. Um, really looking forward to you know, your next projects and, um, y- you know, anything in the next coming months that we should keep our eye out for?
2: Um, yeah, I guess if you want to get into time-lapse, I'm ramping up tutorial production on uh, on my YouTube channel because there's so much interest in it and I am I feel like I'm the right guy for it. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. teaching a lot of stuff. I'm also getting more involved in all this, the, the green movement and this climate change documentary. Um, there's entire playlists of that trip Uh, they can go check out but um yeah instagram twitter and youtube uh is where i'm at matt joe's or matthew vanderpute you'll you'll find me quite easily and yeah thanks for having me it was a good fun i feel like time flew we were only gonna do a short one i know i I know and here we are (laughs) yeah it was great thanks for having me
0: yeah of course it was it's awesome to have your expertise and your insight into a you know a niche of traveling um and I'm certainly a fan. I know I was before we met and became friends and shared some rare beers. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time. Yeah, definitely, man. Likewise. All right. Well, that's that's all for us here on Jet Lag.
1: Uh, my name is Andrew Smith. And I'm Larry Heath. And uh, don't forget to uh, message us on uh, on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the Twitters if you've got any article ideas, episode ideas, anything that you want us to talk about, check us out at jetlag pod.